Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit TobinBrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Made possible by the great crew at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by an inspiring Aussie and a man who wasn't scared to forge his own path to make a telling contribution to Australian sport. Former cyclist Scott McGrory won Olympic gold on the track at Sydney 2000 after bronze at Seoul 88 and World Championship silver at Manchester 96. A Cycling Australia Hall of Famer, a broadcaster, commentator and race director, Scott's journey is one of triumph, tragedy and the inner demons he's faced along the way. Scott McGorry, welcome. Sam, great to be having a chat, mate. A few people over the journey have actually called you, I think, Scott McStory. So fond were you of a yarn, so good, bad or otherwise. I think we're in good hands with you today. Well, all true stories, though. So I had a long (laughs) cycling career. Okay, this is my, my, my version of this. Long cycling career. So I just have Lots of memory recall of all these different stories. Not always about me. They're about whatever, anything that may have popped up along the journey. But um, yeah, I don't mind telling a bit of uh, historical facts. Well, you could tell more than a few yarns, I reckon, just about your hairstyles alone from back in the day. You had amazing range. You had the mullet, you had the ponytails, you had the flat top. I think you've been blonde, you've been brunette. How are the feathers holding up in 2023? The uh, they've, they've departed with the winds, mate. The feathers have gone, um, and it's quite depressing. Whenever, of course, especially these days with social media, you have all your Facebook memories and things pop up, and I just get hair envy all the time when I see all the uh, old historical photos. And yeah, it's pretty chilly in the middle of winter, though. I tell you, these days with not much on top. Yeah, well, some of those old cuts. I tell you, you wouldn't see too many of those old haircuts uh, back in your old town of Walwa, um, your hometown up on the Murray. What were your memories of childhood like up there, Scotty? Farm life, early days were spent on a dairy farm, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And then, look, not uh, not too many memories because we moved from there. My, my parents were working on a on a dairy farm, really close family friends, the Plant family. And there was about 15 kilometres outside of Walwa, which I'm really proud of the fact that I came from a town that no one has ever heard of. But <laughs> it also is indication that it doesn't matter where you come from, okay, you can achieve whatever you want in life with the right opportunity and the right drive and passion. But uh, we moved to Wodonga uh, after a couple of years, and then I had my 10th birthday on the road relocating to the Gold Coast. So most of my formative cycling years were actually uh, up on the Gold Coast. So very, very different upbringing for me between Walwa, Wodonga, Gold Coast, eventually moved to Adelaide, then to Melbourne, then back to Gold Coast, then to America, then to Europe, and now I'm in central Victoria in Bendigo. Jeez, moving around as a kid, given the size of your family, would have been something like a, a convoy. Are you the youngest of six? Is that the case? Yes, I am. I am. So, yeah, um, and really different. The family, it's quite interesting, actually. When I'm with my brothers, 
they were heavily influenced by Wodonga, basically, and, and, and country Victoria, whereas all my you know, formative years were the Gold Coast. So Burley Heads Primary School, Miami High School. So we're very, very different. And, and I know one of my nephews used to call me the cool uncle because I wore board, short, board shorts, not jeans. <laughs> yes, that's right. Your Gold Coast influence rubbing off on them. So I suppose, exactly. Scotty, as a kid, you know, bikes give us our first proper taste of independence, don't they? And I imagine that was the, the same with you. What was your first experience with a bike and maybe relates more to up on the Gold Coast? Did you get around on the pushy much? Yeah, you're, you're spot on there, Sam. It was, for me, what's over the next hill? I'll just ride over there and see what's in that next valley. And it really was um, a journey for me as a kid to just get out there and explore and, and look, um, not being uh, negative towards any other sports, but I used to think about the swimmers or the runners. The runners can go some distance, but they don't get to go that far. The swimmers are up and down a pool. And as a teenager, I used to always just think about and dream about what is over that hill. And I'd, I'd watch movies. I'd watch you know midday movie with my mum during the school holidays, and there might be something from Europe, from mm. Germany, and I'd look at the countryside or the Swiss Alps and think, oh, I'd love to go there and explore and ride and just you know see what it's like in other parts of the world. So for me, cycling was certainly an adventure, um, was a place to go and explore and, and be independent. But at the same time, of course, I was very competitive from an early age. So once that kicked in, I started racing. Then I just wanted to achieve. I wanted to win things. Yeah. So getting around to the milk bar on the pushy for a big M and a donut's one thing. How, how were you exposed to racing, Scotty? How did that come about? How old were you? I was nine. I had a, a cousin that came down to when we were in Aubrey Wodonga. And the big flat track, 500-metre track out at Lavington was a venue that he came down to do a race at. So we all went out as a family just to watch him race and a couple of my older brothers decided to have a bit of a go at cycling and me being the youngest of six, what do you do? You just follow your older brothers. You're heavily influenced by what they do and they started doing a bit of cycling so I followed and in uh, my very first um, race I finished third and then after about a couple of weeks or so my dad said, because these were on borrowed bikes, it was Mm. a schoolboy's clinic out at Lamington and the idea is you you know had the use of a bike for x number of weeks and then hopefully if you like it you'll go and purchase a bike for yourself and after a while my dad um said you know look do you really want to do this i absolutely dad i want to give it a crack so he paid 50 dollars for a frame an old frame from an ex-professional we put it together with some old part and then in my very first race on that bike at the Lavington track was the schoolboys championship and i won it and first prize was a brand new shiny gold Lenny Rogers bicycle. So at the age of nine, I had two bikes and I thought, yeah, this sport's for me. I'm going places. So you had some success as a kid. Oh, I guess some natural ability, enough to push on with it anyway. So there's probably one thing that you can't really teach and that's competitiveness, to have the want, the desire. Even at a young age, did you have that bit between the teeth when the when the whips were cracking? Oh, absolutely. Look, my sister has continually told the story of going to little athletics and at the end of every Saturday's competition I would then ask to race against her I wanted to try and see how I'd go against my big sis she's four years older than me and of course she'd beat me I know I'm only a little guy seven eight nine years of age or whatever it was and so she would beat me we'd do a 60 meter run um, but every week over that particular summer I got closer and closer and closer and I was hounding her every week gonna race again gonna race again and then one week I almost got there almost beat her and that was the last time we ever raced. She refused to race me ever since <laughs> because she knew that I was going to beat her the following week. Such was my progression against her. And so, therefore, she's rightfully 
an out for the last 40-odd years that uh, she retired undefeated, that I never beat her. So you, the family moved to the Gold Coast, like you mentioned, Scotty, but you, you don't pick up the surfboard, well, you don't let it override your love of the bike. And at 17, you go to the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport. How did you get that scholarship? Yeah, it's, when I really think back on it, it was, it was much easier than it's supposed to be, and I didn't learn enough about the process of being an elite athlete because it was a little bit too easy. So I, I went to... You know, normal club racing, win those, go to the state championships in Queensland, win a bunch of those as, you know, under 17 and then into the under 19s. And then as a first year under 19 junior rider, I went to the national track championships and won the kilometre time trial, broke the Australian record. And the time that I rode would have got me a medal in the elite. Wow. So from that, the national coach uh, asked if I'd like a scholarship at the Institute of Sport, um, which, of course, you don't turn these things down back then. You know, if you were a part of that program, that meant you were virtually in the Australian team. And so I said yes, packed up the bags as a very naive 17-year-old from the Gold Coast and moved down to Adelaide where the Institute of Sport track cycling was based. And within a year... Um, that was 1987. So the next year was the Olympic Games. And all of a sudden, I'm now in the Olympic team. Um, and I had no idea about what it normally takes to be an Olympian. I, I, I almost feel as if I just fell into it. Um, we went to the Olympic Games in, in Seoul in 1988, and I picked up a bronze medal in the team pursuit. And to be honest, it all seemed a little bit too easy. And that's why it probably did take 12 years to get to another Olympic Games, because I just didn't understand. I was too naive, too immature to understand the process of, of being elite. And I think you've said this before, but it's crazy to think that you didn't. You fell into a bronze medal, for heaven's sake, but you didn't really have any ambition to be an Olympic gold medalist at all, did you, until you'd actually competed at the Olympics and got bronze, which is amazing given people spend their whole lives up until that point dreaming about it, and you've almost stumbled across this motivation you know, in real time. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Now, look, I, I, of course, remember watching the 84 Olympics. That was 1980. There were little bits about 1980, but 84, definitely, I remember watching... And I've got to meet a few of my heroes from from back then as well, which is, for me, quite significant. But it just seems, I don't know, I don't know if I was just really naive growing up on the Gold Coast, but it just seemed too far away. It just didn't seem as if that was possible. That's something that other people did, was do that Olympic Games thing. And I was focused more on just the local competition and having fun and and winning there. But, you know, it was those local comps and then the state comps, national championships that got me to the Olympic Games eventually. But once I got there, I thought, wow, okay, I'm 18, which is, you know, as you know, Sam, you're, you're a budding cyclist. You know that 18 is pretty young as a cyclist. As an 18-year-old with a bronze medal in my hand, gee, maybe I could win one of these shiny gold things. And it really was going through that process that I got the, the fire to try and actually see if I could become an Olympic gold medalist. It's great to have your company right here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Toma Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. So Scott McGorry's AIS fairy tale is up and running, but it's about to turn into a bit of a nightmare. The career hurdle Scott has to navigate is after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals at Celebrating Lives. And today, we're with Olympic gold medal winning cyclist Scott McGrory. So, Scotty, your foray into elite 
elite level track cycling has gone ridiculously fast, but it unravels almost as fast as it all begins. So what went wrong after the Seoul Olympics? My naivety, really. So I didn't really get along with the national coach that well. I, I went in as a bit of a golden child, um, you know, as this young 17-year-old kid, national record. And I was really competitive against the older riders within our national squad. And I won a bunch of races. It was a couple of really big points races. We call them, um, you know, really difficult, hard races on the velodrome. And as a 17-year-old, I actually beat, you know, some of the, the really well-known Olympians like Dean Woods and Wayne McCartney and some of these guys that were, mm. you know, seemed to be much better than me. So the national coach thought I was, you know, this young superstar coming through but bumped heads a little bit and a lot of that my own um, I guess inner demons about not wanting to give everything over to people within authority and uh, yeah so w- within a couple of seasons I was gone I'd gone from this 18 year old bronze medalist at the Olympics to booted out of the AIS with really, really no idea where I was going to go they kicked you um, out yeah pretty well it kicked me out as in the look I just wasn't performing I, I mm. wasn't training as hard as I probably should have been I wasn't thinking about my diet and nutrition as much as I should have been. So I, I gave them all the reason to get rid of me. And that was justified in the end. I, I wasn't good enough to stay there. Um, but, you know, it was the, I guess it was the, the mental approach and the conflict that was going on that drove me to that. Now, I take responsibility because in the end, you know, it, it was my responsibility to be the best I could be. But I'm 18, I'm 19. I didn't really know what that meant. So, yeah, I just didn't gel in that program the way it was run. So the head coach or the, the then head coach of the national program was, of course, Charlie Walsh. So that's a year or two out out of Seoul, Barcelona 92. Now, Charlie asks you back, does he not? And you want to get back. You're training hard. It all seems like you're about to resurrect things and get your Olympic career back on track. And despite some promising form, Scotty, you're not picked. What 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 went in behind the scenes in the lead up to Barcelona 92? Yeah, that one really hurt because after a couple of years in the wilderness, you know, I realised that, you know, and look, if you look at now, fast forward today, you think the Tour de France and all these young riders, we've got 12 Australians in the Tour de France this year. There's this great pathway to that level. We didn't have it back then. So if you wanted to go and ride the road and be, a, say, a Tour de France type of rider, there was nowhere to go other than fly to Europe, you know, live in some you know, dingy room somewhere in Belgium, perhaps, and just do everything on your own. And it was, it was really tough. It, it just seemed like it was a step too far. So I really wanted to get back into the track team. And when I was asked by the national coach to come back into the squad, I thought, right, okay, here's my opportunity. Regardless of the ill feeling we had, I'm going to put everything towards this because I want to go back to the games. And honestly, I thought that, you know, I was good enough to, to get better than the bronze that we had last time. Mm. And I really did. I trained really, really hard, came down to the selection. They had, um, there was 12 in the squad. The first cull, we went down to eight. And I spoke to two of my best friends within that program separately. They both said if they chose the team themselves, they would have had me had me at number three or number four, but I didn't make the top eight. So the coach didn't put me in at all. And basically what I discovered later was because I was, I'd was i stayed in Adelaide after I'd left the AIS, um, he really just wanted the competitiveness within that squad to be lifted. So he asked me to come in. Mm. I don't think he ever had any intention of putting me in the team. He just wanted me to be there for every training session, every road training session, just to make the team more competitive so they'd race and train harder. Um, so there was a few little dodgy things that went on with um, you know the the parameters around ergo testing and VO2 maxes and manipulations about um, you know where I sat compared to the rest of the guys when it came to the actual selection panel, which I took them to task with, but it was too late after the team was selected. Um, there was no way for me to get back into it, and I, I truly feel that I was good enough to be in that team. Um, and of course, I was very disheartened after that. You know, it was, for me, perhaps didn't verbalise it enough with that particular coach at the time, but I thought this was my way of coming back in, doing everything that I'm told, do it correctly, 
and give it another shot. But unfortunately, I just didn't get it. So it sort of leads you to consider a career on the road, road cycling. But as you touched on just before, the road path's even murkier. I mean, we were back then in Australia a long way away. So the likes of Piper, Anderson, Wilson, you know, they packed their bags and jumped in the deep end in Europe, like you say, and there were struggles early on. So pursuing a road career in the you know early to mid-90s isn't straightforward. But you write a letter, and it's amazing how often on this show, Scotty, good things come from writing letters. Now, you send a letter to the French Cycling Federation. You get a reply. Why? And you race for a French amateur team. Yeah, that's how we did it—the handwritten letter. And, <laughs> oh. and it, look, this is this is this is also around the same time that you know I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I actually went up to Mount Buller and did a lift attendant course to qualify to work in the ski season that particular year. Um, they gave me the job. They said go back to Adelaide, and you know, in about a month or five, six weeks, whenever there's enough snow, we'll call you back up again. And I truly thought that I would be able to go to the gym and still train and come out of that winter after spending it at Mount Buller and still be a psych. Now, as I got closer to the ski season, I realised, what was I thinking? Man, I'm going to just drink and party and ski and have fun all, all winter, aren't I? And that would be that would have been the end of my career. So I ended up calling him up and said, guys, I'm, I'm changing mind. I'm not going to come up. And then I continued cycling, wrote that letter, sent it off to uh, to the, the yeah. French Federation. And fortunately for me, one of the presidents of one of the clubs, the Union Cycliste Nantes in the, the town of Nantes, he happened to be in Paris at the time, saw that letter when it arrived and said, I'll have that, Olympic bronze medalist, absolutely. So he wrote that back and I went over to France and uh, gave myself a bit of a crack at the road over there. Yeah, but typically uh, for Aussie riders of your generation, you've got no money, you're homesick and you're battling, you win a bit. But tell us about the system over there, Scotty, which you didn't even get the prize money for winning, did you? I think it was held back until the end of the year and you had to, to wait for it. So that doesn't help you getting a sandwich the next day. No, and this is purely amateur stuff, right? So they supplied accommodation, but you know, I had to find everything else. There was no salaries or anything involved. So yeah, you'd go to a race not knowing this at the time you go to a race and you know i was doing pretty well i won a, a few races and a couple of small tours but yeah the the prize money it goes into a pot at the start of the season so it's great for the french federation now they've got all of the prize money for all the big races all throughout france that year sitting in a pot for the entire year yeah. and then it gets paid out at the end of the season what i then discovered was preem so they have these you know sprints in a lot of these road races and criteriums etc for money, just money sprints, and we call them preens. So they got paid immediately after the finish. Oh, so hello. I started to sacrifice the overall result yeah. to just start racing for these cash sprints, okay, so just so we could have some money. But, of course, that doesn't help your career, does it, because you're not getting a result at the end because mm. you're wasting all your time and energy going for these money sprints. So I started doing that. Yeah, well, you, you got to eat. And you do hear stories of the desperate nicking food just to eat and race because there's just no framework at all. No, that's true. Look, I, 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 I didn't do this, but I do know of a close friend that uh, would go into the supermarket in Belgium and to the frozen food department and put a steak down the front of the pants and shoplift steak to get out the door with um, pretty cold down below there just to get some protein, just to get some meat. Uh, Certainly don't advise anyone doing that. But yeah, look, I came back at the end of that season and I think I had um, probably about $2. Truly, absolutely flat broke with nothing and just, you know, living off my parents or off friends or family just to get myself going again at the end of that season. Yeah. So Atlanta, 96, you don't even bother with. Charlie Walsh is still in charge there. You turned pro, I think, in 94 for the Jayco Caravans team. And I, I'm assuming Jerry Ryan obviously was on board uh, then, as he now always is. There's a few stints in the US, but you had to go to Europe. There was that uh, realisation you had to do that. 
You'd race Johnny Trevorrow's Bay Crits in the mid-90s. And you catch the eye of someone there. It's often not what we know, it's who we know. And there was a link to a German team that you got yourself over there. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the American stint was great. And that was the Jayco Caravans team. So the first fully-fledged professional team in Australia, thanks to Jerry Ryan. And I could have stayed. I could have kept going back to America. It was fun, you know, win a bit of money, uh, got some good results. But it's not really the professional level that I wanted to be. Um, so I thought, look, if I go back to America... I'm not going to make this level, this big leap that I really want to do. I have to get back to Europe. And at the end of the 95 season, we're back here in Australia, going in towards 1996. And I rode the Bay Classic Criterium Series. And they had a pretty tough one down around Port Arlington Mm. with a hill in it. And this small German team happened to be out racing as well. And I won that particular race. Got chatting to the German riders and said, look, I'd love to, you know, go over to Europe and and give it a real crack, proper crack this time. And um, so they called their boss and said, look, we've got this guy that just won one of the toughest crits we have here in Australia. What do you think? And off I went. So they signed me up, small amount of money. I think it was 15,000 Deutschmarks was that first contract that year. And um, off to Germany, I went. The owner owned a whole bunch of apartments, so gave me an apartment to, to live in for the for the season, free of charge. And um, things really started to take off. I was yeah. riding really well for that team on the road. But at the end of that season, boss of the team also was the organiser of the Dortmund six-day race, which is a you know, prestigious track event. Um, so I had a bit of a, an, an in to get myself into the track racing that I was also looking forward to doing in Europe as well. Yeah, so you become a bit of a six-day guru over there on the Euro winter circuit. Big crowds, lights, music for those unfamiliar with this sort of type of racing. You know, big in those parts in this era, wasn't it? Oh, you see it a bit now in London and Ghent, but it was massive back there at the time. Well, it was. And, and look, the, you know, the event that, that Brett Aiken and I won at the Olympic Games was the Madison, 60-kilometre Madison race. And the Madison, the name of that event, comes from Madison Square Garden, mm. where these races first started all those years ago, you know, early last century. And the six-day events, once they switched from America to Europe, they really did take off. And they were massive through the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. And then I got there mid-90s, mid to, mid to late 90s, when they were still really prestigious. And they have drifted off a little bit these days because of the size of the road and the importance of the Tour de France. But at least when I was there, um, these races were big. And they were paying money, and that's what I needed. I, had, I still had nothing. Um, um, and, and you get contracted to do each of these races, plus there's some prize money, and I was pretty good at it. So I was starting to finally make a little bit of money, but it was a track as a track cyclist, not yeah. as a road cyclist where all the big money is these days. We're with Olympian and former pro cyclist Scott McGrory on This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Up next, Scott's Olympic resurrection is met with a tragedy he could never have imagined. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with Olympic gold medalist turned broadcaster Scott McGorry. So, Scott, you raced Team Pursuit at Seoul 88, and it was an event you chased for Barcelona 92. But you've since, as we just discussed, become an accomplished Madison rider. And lo and behold, Sydney 2000 introduces the Madison at the Olympics for the first time ever. There is a window. (laughs) Absolutely. And that was the thing. So these six-day races I was doing in Europe, it was... 
it's something I always wanted to do. Now, I had bought VHS videos in the 80s when I was a junior of these European six-day events, these track events. So I was always inspired to want to do these things, and I'd fallen into them. Oh, perhaps I'd, I'd pushed my way into them. I was good enough to be there, and, and I was successful at doing them. But while I kept doing those through 96, 97, 98, I became an expert at that type of racing. That's when the announcement was made that the Madison, for the first time, would come into the Sydney Olympic Games. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. You know, looking at the Australians that are available, um, you know, Danny Clark before me was the greatest six-day Australian cyclist that we've ever had, but he had just retired, so he wasn't going to be an option. I thought, I've got to do this. This is an event made for me. I want to be there. Um, and uh, I was going to call the national coach, still the same one that I'd had my falling out with. He's still in charge, been, Charlie Walsh. He was there. Well, he's been there. He'd been there all through the, the early 80s, right oh. through a very, very long career. And I thought, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to give him a call because I want to do the Olympic Games in Sydney, the mm. Madison for me. That's my event. And uh, I came back to my apartment in Germany and back in the old days, you know, you had the answering machine and I, I pushed play. There was a message and it was Charlie. Charlie had actually called me um, to say that, look, he'd been watching my career in the six days and as a Madison rider and asked if I would uh, come in and ride the world championship in 1999 um, in the Madison event with Brett Aiken because that was the event that qualified all the spots for the Olympics the next year in Sydney. And I thought, wow, this is is it. I didn't have to... In the end, it was a little victory for me because as stupid and as immature as it sounds, I didn't have to call him. He called me. I thought, yep, awesome. There's a little victory for for Scott. So I called him back and said, look, absolutely, Charlie, let's have a a conversation about it. You know, we had a a really good mature meeting. I I was a a very different person and athlete, obviously, by this point compared to Mm. my first time spent with him as an 18-year-old. And I had matured a lot as, as an athlete. So we, you know, we had the, the tough call and tough conversation. I said, look, there's been a lot of water under the bridge between us. As far as I'm concerned, all that's in the past. We are just trying to push forward now to try and win gold for Australia um, on home soil in Sydney. And um, yeah, the rest is history. Brett and I combined at the World Championships to qualify just, I must say, because Brett did crash out at those World Championships. So we just scraped in to qualify, but then at least we got the spots. We got the position to ride in Sydney and, you know, and it was still under the same coach that I had my, my issues with. So Brett is your teammate, Brett Aiken, and you, you, you're right. You settled on paper, but as would soon become clear, you, you're not really, I mean, reality of being settled is anything but. So Brett has some real challenges. His daughter Ashley's diagnosed with Rett syndrome, which is a horrible developmental disorder. And then you and your wife Donna, obviously, would um, Scotty would have your own horrific challenges. So your son Alexander is born several weeks premature on April 13, um, and a heart problem is soon discovered, isn't it? Yeah. So it was a really difficult pregnancy, and and Donna had spent the last six weeks. Uh, bedridden in hospital and they were really concerned about what was happening and then eventually when he was born and you know I, I was still going back and forth to Europe so this is you know right in the middle of you know peak training time for the Olympic Games um, so I was fairly torn between where I should or shouldn't be mm. so a lot of really deep and meaningful conversations were going on between us about where I should be or shouldn't be and um, you know to this day I still feel pretty guilty for for still being away as much as I was but so yeah Alexander was born initial checks were okay we thought oh okay sign of relief everything's going to be okay then three days later they picked up an issue with his heart and he was transferred to the royal children's to undergo some emergency surgery and then that was the ongoing thing he was really small so basically they needed to just let him grow and get bigger and bigger and and continue doing some the the procedures 
and surgeries on his heart. And uh, yeah, that led to the point where he was stable and Donna had said, okay, well, you've got to get back to Europe now. And I thought that was a pretty ridiculous thing to even think about. Um, I thought that was a pretty ridiculous thing to, to contemplate because, you know, it was a pretty tough time for all of us. But mm. she said, no, the Olympics are still coming. You have to be back in Europe to be training and racing. Alexander's okay for now. Um, you can always come back if there's any issues. So packed up the bags and went back to Europe and um, been there probably about three weeks or so. And, and she sent over a, a, a video cassette um, just that she'd filmed of Alexander. So I was watching that this particular day thinking, oh, you know, look, he looks great and everything's fine. And then woke up the next morning, phone call from Donna to say that uh, there's some issues. Uh, they are going to re- to do surgery tonight and they don't like the chances they're a bit worried about this one so you have to get back here so i got on the first available flight back to australia landed in singapore with one more flight to get back to melbourne um made the call knowing the surgery had taken place and uh donna said yeah i've been i've been dreading this call i said well, well hang on what's happened what's happened they, said, well, they nicked a valve in his heart which put him into cardiac arrest he's on life support at the moment but effectively you know they don't think he's going to make it through the night so then I got on a plane, flew to Melbourne. Customs had been alerted at the situation. So when I arrived, they quickly got me through as quickly as possible, got to the hospital, and I had 45 minutes with him before he passed away. Um, that was two and a half months before the Games. And, you know, you can only imagine the, the, the heartbreak that comes with that. Um, you know, that night, just the, 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 the pain and the crying and... It was something that, you know, you, no one should ever have to go through. And you know, I effectively said, that's it. I'm done. You know, I'd been going back and forth to Europe a fair bit. My training and everything in preparation had been interrupted anyway. Now I had this incredible dose of reality that there is something much, much bigger than a sporting event. And I said, I'm not going to be able to do this. I, I don't care anymore about the Olympics. Um, and, I, and we just parked it. We parked it at that until after the funeral. Mm. and pretty much after that Donna said okay right we're going to go back to Europe I said well what for she said no we're going to keep going you're going to have to keep going if you get to the end of this year and you haven't at least tried to go to Sydney for the the Olympics Alexander's still not going to be with us and you won't have gone to the Olympics you'll regret this forever so with her blessing we packed up and went back to to Europe and and she basically said look I'll do everything I'll cook clean do everything you need to you just get your ass out on the bike and ride Um, and I thought yeah well it's pretty easy to say but when you're training as hard as you know elite athletes do you've got to be mentally switched on to push through all the pain and all the challenges you have and so that led to just this incredible roller coaster of emotions every day on the bike. Mm. You know, there were days where I felt inspired and I trained harder than I'd ever trained. And then the next day to go out and do the same type of training ride, I, I remember a day where I got in 20 minutes into the ride, just getting out of town, hadn't even really started training yet and pulled over to the side of the road and stopped because I realized with the amount of tears that were flowing, I couldn't focus. I couldn't see the cars and the traffic and the traffic light. And I thought, I'm going to get hit if I keep going. So I just stopped, composed myself, turned around and just rode home. Mm. Basically did nothing for the day. So that was going on for you know the two and a half months leading into the games itself. And it completely broke me mentally. You know, I went from this super confident rider that thought the Olympics were made for me, the Madison event, um, to a guy that I thought was going to just let everybody down, including my racing partner, Brett Aiken, and family and friends. I just I just had no self-doubt by the time I got to the Sydney Olympics, which had to be turned around. I had to change that attitude. Yeah, i got I got to say, Scotty, hearing you recount that, I, I can't imagine, I need to thank you for doing so, because I can't imagine that's 
just ever easy to recall, even as the years go by. That that can't be easy to retell. That no, it's not. And you know, I, I every time I have to fight back my emotions to uh, enable myself to mm-hmm. just keep going with the conversation. But I, I have learnt over time that anyone that does get to hear these sorts of stories um, that have had hard times or have gone through something similar. It can be a bit of a voice for them, and it does give them some some hope and some inspiration that you can still come through these situations and achieve in life. So I'm okay with with telling it. Um, it hurts every time, every single time, regardless of of how long. Look, it, it hurts when I get on an international flight because every single international flight over at night in a mm. dark cabin reminds me of that flight from Singapore to Melbourne every time. And I've, you know, I fly for a living. I'm always going back to Europe, so I have to distract myself whenever I get on those uh, those night flights because, you know, if I don't, it just takes me straight back to that particular night flying back to Melbourne to to hopefully be there when my son was still alive. Um, so I'll keep telling it. Um, it obviously it's therapeutic for me to to go through. And if I can help anyone that's listening, then absolutely, I'll keep telling the story. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. There's more to come with Scott McGorry right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We've been joined today by one of the stars of the Sydney Olympics, cyclist Scott McGorry. So, Scotty, you've obviously had to navigate all sorts of trauma, all sorts of emotion in the countdown to what should be the most exciting period of your life, the Olympic Games. Tell me about the morning of the race. So the morning of the Madison, Sydney 2000, you wake up in the Athletes' Village. Brett Aiken is your roomie and he's still asleep when I think you apologised to him, even if he didn't hear it. Yeah, exactly. So 12 years on from my last Olympic Games, you know, and this was to be you know, the big one, okay? Sydney Olympics, Madison event. Brett and I, we knew we were one of the favourite teams, if not the favourite. Um, yet I was so racked with self-doubt after the traumatic, you know, final couple of months months leading into the games that um, by the time I woke up the morning of the race, I had this feeling, this overwhelming obligation to Brett to apologise to him for letting him down for what's going to happen that day. Now, I didn't want to break his confidence. I didn't want to, you know, shake him and wake him up in his bed and say, hey, mate, I've got to tell you, um, my head is completely off. I don't know what's going on. I'm really sorry. I'm going to let you down today. I didn't want to do that. So that was going to break his confidence. So when I woke up, I looked across, I saw, you know, he was turning the other way in his bed and I whispered, I'm sorry, mate, and then paused. There was no response. And then, okay, I thought, well, I don't think he heard me, but I, I felt obliged to say it. And mm. and I think about it now, I think it's pretty cowardly that I, I wanted to say it, but I didn't want him to hear it, um, you know, for his own confidence. So then I got out of bed, which woke him up. And then we got up, he didn't say anything. I thought, okay, right, he didn't hear it. Good, fine. Went and had breakfast, went through the process of getting ready for, for the race, went for a bit of a road ride. And we spoke about tactics and we knew the competition really, really well. Um, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We'll stick to our plan. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And he was bursting with, with enthusiasm and confidence and the whole time I'm thinking God you know this guy's life sporting dream is in my hands and I am going to waste it I'm going to absolutely let him down not to mention our family our friends teammates people that have got us to that point so 
So by the time we got to the track, we're about two hours before the race. We've walked into the velodrome and I'm still, you know, racked with self-doubt. And we saw our families and, and I know Brett was even more confident after seeing his family hmm. that we were going to win. And I walked away thinking, oh my God, I've just, you know, basically lied to everyone right in front of them that, you know, we're confident we're going to go well. We've got no chance. So when we, I went into the compound in the middle of the velodrome and sat down. I thought, okay, right, the race is now going to happen. Okay, so probably been, you know, mentally putting it in the background up to this point and just training and preparing and, you know, the apologies aside, all of that stuff. I'm now inside the venue. We're about to go and warm up and start getting ready for the Olympic Games Madison final. I thought, I can't start the race with this attitude. This is bullshit. I cannot do this. I have to turn this around. I've got to at least start the race with some level of positivity that we're going to try our best or I will try my best. So I picked up my chair and I walked away from the Australian team compound over to the other side of the, the centre of the velodrome completely on my own away from everyone sat down and then just started to talk to myself i kind of you know <laughs> relate it to it's like a country football grand final and the coach you know you're a real rough nut probably a you know tradie co uh, coach that's looking after the team that's a few goals down at three quarter time mm. and he's just trying to give his team that rev up for the final quarter um and that's how i spoke to myself you know i ripped in ripped in and swearing at myself and you know talking about the opposition and how they're here to try and beat you and yet they know that your son's died and been a tough time for you but you know what they don't care they're here to win they are here to beat you and through that process I was able to convince myself that regardless of where I felt I was as an athlete in terms of fitness and you know I, I put a number on it I thought maybe I'm at 80% if you're at that level there's no way you can win an Olympic game and I thought well, okay how about this if I'm at 80% and I can still win now wouldn't that be something incredible <laughs> and then you know then I started to you know pet myself up a little bit yeah Actually, that would be an buddy story. No one's really going to know about this story. It doesn't matter. It's just me, my internal monologue. But if I can still win gold at 80%, oh, man, that would be amazing. And then oh, I picked up my chair. I walked back into the compound. I started my warm-up. Now, you can still remember, as I'm warming up on the home trainer, thinking to myself, we're going to win this. This is going to be an incredible story. You know, I'm underdone. Training hasn't been great. It's been a terrible build-up, but I'm still going to do it. I'm going to pull this one off. And as I went up onto the track, most of the other teams had all lined up. And, and this, I always preface this by saying this sounds pretty corny, but it's exactly what I was mm. thinking to myself. I looked at all the other riders as they lined up, and I thought, you guys are a bunch of suckers. How dare you think you can come to our track and beat us? You are all racing for silver. And, you know, I wasn't thinking about how down in the dumps I'd been or the tragedy of losing my son. It was simply, you're all going to lose because we are the best. And I just went in, you know, to the zone, the sporting zone, and we raced with complete confidence. Um, you know, I wasn't at 80%. But we raced so well together. We dominated the event that clearly I had trained enough. I just didn't think I had. So we completely dominated the race and, and come away with gold, uh, which two hours earlier, uh, and that morning, I was apologizing to my partner, thinking we were going to be terrible. So it was an incredible test of mind yeah. how we can turn things around. And look, I think every one of us possessed this kind of um, capability. Uh, and I never really thought about it at the time. I just went through the steps to try and get myself mentally ready to be my best for the race at, at the very last minute. And it wasn't until I did a talk, I did a presentation on the Olympics a few years later. It was, again, for Jerry Ryan, actually, at a Jayco um, dealer conference. He asked me to talk about the Olympics. So I went through the step, putting a presentation together, and that was the first time that I actually went back and thought about what I did to change my mindset. Um, 
And I remember thinking, bloody hell, that was that was incredible what, what you did there. How'd you do that? You know, because you're just not conscious of going through that process. There was no, I wasn't listening to anyone else. No one else said, hey, go over there and sort yourself out. Mm. You know, I had to go through it all myself, um, basically because I was racked in guilt and self-doubt that I got to the point where I thought, I better change this and turn it around, um, which thankfully I was able to do. And I, I truly think that everyone possesses that level or that ability to change their mindset in any given situation. You've done pretty well to put into words. I was, I was going to suggest it must be not impossible to do so. I can't imagine the, the realisation of, of winning gold after everything that preceded it. In fact, I think with still a couple of laps to go, you'd actually started crying out there on the on the track, hadn't you, at one particular point? <laughs> Yeah, I did because uh, look, the race itself, you know, it's a it's a point race. Mm. So every twenty laps, there are sprints for points, and the team with the most points gets to win the event at the end. And we had uh, we'd picked up enough points to be unbeatable going into the final sprint. So we got to about ten laps to go, and all the real hardcore racing had stopped, and we we should not be able to lose from this point. And um, and I, I took my you know my game face off and started to think about everything I'd just been through. Um, and yeah, thoughts obviously just went back to Alexander and the tough times we'd had. And with that, I started welling up and I thought, well, hang on a minute. You know, we've got 10 laps to go in the Olympic Games Madison final. It's pretty chaotic on the velodrome. You're going to have a crash now if you, if you don't sort this out. So I quickly just snapped back into, right, OK, we'll do all that stuff later. But then by the time we got to the line and crossed the line, it was it wasn't thoughts of that. It was it was all about the, the achievement um, and it was elation to to be finally after 12 years between the Olympic Games births to be knowing that I'm about to stand on the top step of the podium alongside Brett Aiken it was just an amazing feeling Um, yet when I did actually get to stand on the podium it was tinged with sadness because I know um, of the loss and you know I wondered to myself you know would I have would I give back the gold medal to have Alexander still with us Mm. absolutely I would absolutely I would Uh, yourself and Donna would go on to have two healthy daughters which is great obviously uh, Madeline Elena and, and Leilani, who's a, a bit younger, um, but geez, you, ha- you had some more heartbreak as well um, with some other pregnancies. You must be so thankful for the for the two healthy young girls you've got as part of your family. Oh, absolutely. There is six years between them because of those other challenges that we faced. But um, with my my oldest daughter, uh, Maddie, she's over in Europe at the moment doing a, you know, a trip of a lifetime and actually on a Contiki tour at the moment. So I told her, look, semi fighters of everything everything about the trip yep. except for this period while like you're on the <laughs> holiday. I don't want to know. Don't want to know. And just just came back from the snow last week with uh, with Leilani. She's getting into snowboarding and on the skier, and just loving the fact that you know we get to spend these um, fantastic moments together, knowing how a lot of people actually unfortunately don't get that opportunity in their situation. So yeah, I've got two fantastic kids, both very very different, um, which makes it even better. Scott McGorry, just awesome to talk to you today. I mean, you faced the sort of tragedy few can relate to, yet you achieved the sort of things that few can relate to as well. Yours is an amazing journey in every sense. So I wanted to say well done on everything you've done and thanks a lot for sharing it with us today. I really appreciate it, Sam. Um, yeah, look, it still hurts to talk about these things, but I, I think of the positives. And even with Alexander now, when I think about Alexander, as hard as it was, I think of the love and the joy of having him in the first place. Um, mm. And that kind of tempers things a little bit and I don't get so sad I just think about how amazing it was to have that you know it was our first baby so it was a ball of joy for us you've been listening to this is your journey for Tobin Brothers funerals celebrating lives you can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey